last radio hour of the week, the Hillsdale Dialogue, with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, all things Hillsdale, and there is a lot, are collected at hillsdale.edu, including all the previous Hillsdale Dialogues going back many, many years over many, many subjects. And today there is a rich vein to mine in the years 1789 to 1829. The founding of the Republic included four seminal moments, Washington taking office, Adams in a peaceful transition of power succeeding him in 1796, Jefferson ousting Adams in a peaceful transition of power in 1800, and then Andrew Jackson riding into town in 1828 with another revolutionary, but not, moment. Dr. Arn, good morning. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I am great. Now, there is a lot of facile comparisons that say President Obama is to Trump as Jefferson was to Jackson, and I don't believe they're true. But they are incredibly important transitions in both cases. I think by studying the transitions of the first 40 years of the republic, we often uncover uh, some timeless lessons. Do you agree or, or disagree with that? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, we were busy establishing our republic, uh, you know, which has the most placid history in all, of all republics, which means there's constant controversy and war. Uh, and... These were, you know, it, it, it's, uh, it, most of the things that happened had never happened before. And so everybody had to adjust to them and work out how to do it. And, you know, the people who, who were doing the working out in the early of those years you named, there were people who actually also built the government, and they fell to fighting with each other. And then they had a series of arguments with the other that, are, that rival the Federalists versus the Anti-Federalists. Uh, except now they're both written, they're all written by former Federalists. Now, now what's interesting to me is that it took a warrior neo-king in Washington to get it set up. And then immediately it, be, it falls to Adams and Jefferson, who were not warriors in the revolution. They were diplomats and legislators. And they would eventually get replaced after a couple of successors in interest and heirs in ideology of Madison and Monroe by a general again. So when the Republic was set up, were people thinking generals beyond Washington, in your opinion, Dr. Arner, were they thinking, we'll, we'll get back to the Franklins and the Adamses and the Jeffersons eventually? Well, they were, what, what, what unites them all is they were people of high public service. Remember, uh, Je Jefferson and Adams were attainted for treason because they signed the Declaration of Independence. And that means they were wanted men through the Revolutionary War. And uh, and so yeah, they they took risks, but generals. There have been a lot of generals as president, and the, the majority of them have military service, and that's a sign of, you know. So w what we look for in a president, and the outstanding different example is Donald Trump, is people who have experience in high public service. So there's uh, who you know before Trump the. The, the uh, famous generals, high elected officials, and William Howard Taft, uh, who was a cabinet member, right, and, and uh, did very good. Oh, Herbert Hoover, sorry. Hoover? You betcha, Hoover. Hoover. The man who saved Europe Hoover from was, starving. Is an exception that proves the old rule because he was famous for food relief to Europe after the uh, First World War when he became a national figure. Uh, so. Okay. That, you know, America has gravitated toward people who have records of high public service.
Now, is that, in your opinion, because we expect that as a republic or because the attention of the American public previous to the rise of mass media was focused almost exclusively on the statesmen and women who occupied Washington, D.C. We've had movie stars before, Ronald Reagan and Arnold Schwarzenegger and George Murphy and, and John Tunney, but they were usually California politicians. But not usually it requires some degree of renown that is earned by labors in the public vineyards. That's right. Yeah, and I, you know, I think that's still the rule. Um, you know, if you look at people running for office, both parties look for war service. I think the Republicans probably find it more often. But that's a commitment to the republic and the public good that is demonstrable as a condition of office. And that's, uh, you know, that's a common thing. And it's interesting that there's no requirements about that uh, in the Constitution. Uh, George Washington was unique, of course, because he just distinguished himself so greatly in the war for his victory and also for his comportment, for his uh, self-restraint. And so he was the one trusted man. And, you know, no, no one, you'd think, no, no one except Washington, greater than Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, right? They just, uh, without them, no revolution. Without uh, Jefferson, no Declaration of Independence, at least not written as beautifully as it is. And yet, they could be challenged as president in a way that George Washington could not. Now, along comes uh, John Adams, and I want to talk about the transition from Adams to Jefferson. People ought to watch the amazing HBO series John Adams by Paul Giamatti. I used to show that to my law students because it, it's shot in natural light. It's an amazing uh, avocation of an era that is unique in American history. But he is often a forgotten man, and he, he did try to walk the neutrality line. But Jefferson sweeps him away, and in the Hillsdale uh, American Heritage Reader, there is Thomas Jefferson's first address. And he talks about a rising nation spread over a wide and fruitful land. I was looking for things in his first inaugural address that Adams couldn't have agreed with, and there really isn't much, right? What, what is it that drove the two parties apart in your estimate, Dr. Arndt? Uh, ambition. Um, it, uh, you know, by the way, their account of it later... Adams and Jefferson restored their friendship, and Adams says a famous thing to his friends in Braintree, because they had a 14-year correspondence, you know, often in Latin, uh, back and forth with each other. They uh, Jefferson refused to discuss with Adams their differences. They talked about everything under the sun except politics, but. Uh, uh, a neighbor says to John Adams, I'm so glad that your friendship with Jefferson is restored. And he said, well, it was never interrupted. And uh, and the question, what was it all about? And he said, well, Mr. Jefferson wanted to be president, and I was in the way. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, you know, they, they accused each other of, uh, you know, one was the party of the rabble and the mob. Uh, that's what... Uh, Federalists said about the Jeffersonians, and the other was a monarchist party. Well, neither of those things was true. You know, the, the Federalist Party was founded by George Washington, who at least arguably had a chance to become king, king and eschewed the idea. So 
neither of them were, uh, you know, rabble-rousers or monarchists. But that was the sort of central charge against them. And, you know, and it is one of my uh, arguments to uh, Steelers fans and others that the divine right of America to lead is established by the divine right uh, evident in the fact that both Jefferson and Adams died 50 years after the day that the Declaration of Independence was signed in 1826 on July 4th. And I believe the last thing that Adams said is Jefferson lives. I'm not sure, but they, I'm no, not sure true. that that, that is true. true. <laughs> okay. And also, it's true that uh, Jefferson <laughs> had died two hours earlier. Uh, you see, <laughs> Adams was up on the news. Isn't that that is the the greatest argument for the divine right of America to lead uh, as evidenced in, in, in coincidence ever? Yeah, well, it, it's uh, it's just uh, so Lincoln. So if you look back on it all, you know, with a with a an objective eye, with a dispassionate eye, what you find is that these people cooperated in the building of the greatest Republican history starting from nothing and they were aware of that and they uh and they you know like their their different tempers were um were manifest in the way they comported themselves out of office and after the controversy but all of them well with the exception of the attitude toward Aaron Burr uh all of them and he wasn't one of the main ones uh, all of them you know recognized the greatness in the others Burr was an aide, I believe, to Henry Lee. Uh, we'll, we'll have to talk about that after the break. Burr is a, is a scoundrel. He really is. But there is no good drama without scoundrel. When we come back, Jefferson's inaugural address and Andrew Jackson's inaugural address as we prepare to get into de Tocqueville in a couple of weeks. Dr. Larry Arn is my guest. This is the Hillsdale Dialogue, all things Hillsdale, including an application for your son or daughter, or for you if you happen to be 17 or 18 and listening. Hillsdale.edu. Summer has come to Michigan, so it's 40 degrees up there. It's a good time to visit Hillsdale College. Stay tuned, America. It's an awful lot that happens in D.C. that you never hear about, unless you're here when Hugh Hewitt returns. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Dr. Larry Arn and I are in the Hillsdale Dialogue, all things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. Sometimes a sentence is not a sentence, Dr. Arn. This is one sentence from Thomas Jefferson's inaugural address, his first. Let us then, with courage and confidence, pursue our federal and Republican principles, colon, our attachment to union and representative government. Here comes the sentence. Kindly separated by nature in a wide ocean from the exterminating habitat of one quarter of the globe, too high-minded to endure the degradation of the others, possessing a chosen country, 
with room enough for our descendants to the thousandth and thousandth generation, entertaining a due sense of our equal right to the use of our own faculties, to the acquisitions of our own industry, to honor and confidence from our fellow citizens, resulting not from birth but from our actions and their sense of them, enlightened by a benign religion, professed in deed and practiced in various forms, yet all of them indicating honesty, truth, temperance, gratitude, and the love of man, acknowledging and adoring an overruled providence by which all of these dispensations proves that it delights in the happiness of men here and his greater happiness hereafter. With all these blessings, what more is necessary to make us a happy and prosperous people? That's one sentence, and it's a question. Yeah, that's pretty good. And see, the next sentence is uh, one of the most beautiful summaries of what the government is for in the next two sentences uh, to answer his question. Still one thing more, fellow citizens, a wise and frugal, remember that word, government, which shall restrain men from injuring one another, shall leave them otherwise free to regulate their own pursuits of industry and improvement, and shall not take from the mouth of labor the bread it has earned. This is the sum of good government. And, see, that's a, a, a statesman ought to memorize that. That is beautiful. And, by the way, we don't rehearse this program. So Dr. Arm was reading what I was reading, and he found it, and he just picked it up, because that is, that is the sum of good government from Jefferson. That's right. Okay, so Kennedy said when all the Nobel laureates were there, it's the greatest collection of intellect in the White House since Jefferson dined alone. So if you believe that, Bon Mott, you've got to go look at this. He said, this is the sum of good government. He's not lying. He's, he believes it. Yeah, that's right. And he, and you know, he, uh, uh, like a, a big thing in the Jefferson administration was that he bought Louisiana, that, that big territory, from, from France. And he didn't think he had the power to do it. Uh, an immediate precedent in his administration was uh, they wanted to money to uh, dredge Boston Harbor, you know, a, a, a seat of international trade and a naval base. And he didn't think he had the power to do that. Necessary and proper, uh, the two ways. So in Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution, there are 17 clauses. And the 17th is to, all, to do all things necessary and proper to these ends. And you can read that necessary and proper in more than one way. The way Jefferson wanted to read it was, if you can't do it unless the thing cannot be done without it, right? So yep. you can still have Because it's necessary and proper. That's that is right. the correct interpretation, but our Supreme Court has left that long ago behind because of another Virginian, John Marshall, who we have to talk about sometime. Yeah, yeah. No, he, well, Madison's position is in between, and uh, the correct one, I think. But Jefferson takes this view, and he's a man of principle. And then, you know, in, in this speech, and you just read, you know, the uh, the land that the, that the nation has is a crucial thing, right? Because it can grow, and people can have their lives and their farms. And, uh, and so now uh, Napoleon is offering a lot more at an affordable price. And so he did what prudential men do. He violated his <laughs> I spend a, I spend an entire class in Conlie, and you only have forty classes. I spend an entire class on the decision to buy Louisiana, as it is clearly unconstitutional. By the man who warned about overarching government and limited government, as you just summarized. But it was necessary 
and it was prudent, and he did it. Yeah, and see, and, and remember a distinction, because you could, uh, we could conclude from that that, uh, like one of my, my con law professor, Leonard Levy, he used to say, in the end, it's just whose ox is being gored. Uh, in other words, there isn't any principle that raised. Oh, that's not, we got to come back and pick up there. That's not true, and we'll explain why when we return to the Hillsdale Dialogue. All Hillsdale Dialogues at HughForHillsdale.com. Joined by Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. This is our weekly Hillsdale Dialogue, sponsored by Hillsdale College. I love these things, as this audience has grown to love. But when we left off, we were talking about a heresy. Dr. Arn, it proves by being here that you can survive heresy in the classroom if you pay attention. Uh, his con law professor, Levy, says to him that, Jack, uh, that Jefferson's acquisition of Louisiana proves there are no principles, and I thought about it during the break, Doctor, and it actually proves that departures, it proves principle because it's the departure from principle and a necessary one. It doesn't prove that there aren't any principles, it just proves that occasionally there must be departures from them. Yeah, well, there are a lot of principles, and they can conflict, and so Jefferson's reading of the Constitution was too rigid even for him to make it work. And see, the, the principle that we need land and national defense, that's a principle, and the principle that we need limited government, that's a principle, and they're both important. And so which one do you follow at the moment? Well, when it's not difficult, you know, sometimes it's, you know, like there are a lot of things that are not, well, everything's difficult today, but we were just talking in the break. Should the governor of Michigan be able to close all the restaurants by her order alone and for a year? You know, that's a that, that looks to me like an easy call. It is an easy call. Bill Barr that, said right? so on this show. Uh, all of a sudden, lockdowns become violations of the Bill of Rights. That's right, and churches too. See, well, those are not those are not difficult things. You know, I mean, you 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 can say that they're difficult. What she says is, I had to do it to save lives. But the truth is, there are two emergency laws in Michigan on the books. And she started out under the modern one, which requires her to consult with the legislature. And the first time they turned her down, then she went to the arbitrary one, just herself. And that was passed after the Second World War. And, and so she is, uh, you know, destroying people's businesses. Uh, She's loose on the land. And she will right. be repudiated. I believe she will be repudiated. Now I want to go to... To Andrew Jackson before we run out of time, because he is... John Meacham wrote a magnificent book about him, um, The Lion. Uh, and uh, in your notes, in your reader, Jackson won a plurality of all electoral and popular votes in the 1824 election. So he won both the constitutional majority, the Electoral College, and the popular majority, which doesn't count, but it's nevertheless interesting. But he was denied the presidency when the election was decided in the House of Representatives. I want people to understand that you know, they may not know much about American history, but they got to understand the constitutional system of not winning when you've won the most votes has been around a long time. And a lot of people are always disappointed by it. Uh, 2016, 2000. But it's there for a reason. And Jackson didn't start a war. 
He went away and ran for president again. He won in 1828. And his feud with Henry Clay was decided, I think, dispositively at that moment. What was it about, Larry Arn? Well, uh, you know, it was uh, the, the country. Just think of the, of the amazing transformations that had already occurred in the country, right? It was now, you know, Tennessee is a state, for God's sake, and that's where Jackson comes from, right? And it was a glimmer in the eye of the founding founders, if even that, when George Washington was elected president. So now you've got a big, sprawling republic, and it's getting bigger all the time. And Jackson wants it to get bigger and bigger and had personally something to do with that, both as a general and as a president. And so... Uh, it, it, it changes things when it begins to assume the size that the founders had imagined for it. And that means the Electoral College, you know, had two features, and one of them didn't work, and one of them I think is still vital to the United States. And what the, what One feature was a bunch of people outside the maelstrom meet for one time, having been appointed, and they pick the president, and then the body is dissolved and they're done. Right, and that will lead to dispassionate picking of the best man. Well, that didn't really last very long. I mean, it's it's under strain in this in the election of 1800 and of 1798, that six that election too. Uh, it's under strain, but the part that's really great is it makes the vote be distributed by states across the geography of the nation, and that means it's a device to unite a sprawling land into a whole. And it doesn't matter so very much where people live, right? Because it turns out we forget it, but we have these bodies, and they have to be fed, and they have to make a living, and the conditions are different, very different in very different parts of the country. And so uh, the right system is the one we've got now, which is the popular vote matters very much, and it'll be rare when the popular vote goes one way and the Electoral College goes the other. But it also means you've got a campaign all over the country. Absolutely. It means that you must go to the small states and you must pay attention to the regions and you must be a president of the entire geography or you will be a divisive president. If you get half the country geographically, you will not govern well, as we will find out with President Biden. Let me read you the one thing that connects the Jeffersonian and the Jacksonian inaugurals. Our foreign relations, Jackson wrote when he gave this, although in their general character, Pacific and friendly, presents subjects of difference between us and other powers, of deep interest as well to the country as large as to many of our citizens. He and Jefferson are both leery of foreign entanglements, as was Washington, as was Adams. It is the fairly consistent position but was that because there was so much land to cover and so much distance between? Well, no. It, well, first of all, it starts with the simple thing, right? Them and us, right? We are very concerned about foreign influence in our elections today. And, you know, the, the, it's interesting to me that uh, Biden has taken, at least on the surface, a very tough line about China. But the danger was that he was all mobbed up with China, especially through his son. And people don't like that because we get to govern ourselves. 
and others, Russians and Chinese and whoever's alleged to be mucking with our elections, they're not to do that. But heck, that's one reason Charles I was beheaded in England. He was taking money from abroad, and that meant he could skirt the will of Parliament, the people's representatives, or the people and the Lord's representatives. And so, yeah, that's an old concern. And it just shows, by the way, because, you know, America had to unite in sentiment, right? It, and, and the states had had a common existence, but only through the British crown, you know, before the revolution. And now we're going to make up something new and put George Washington at the head of it. And, you know, the states were meant to be, pray that that day could, continue, could return, much more important in the governing of the land than, than uh, the federal government, only national matters. And if you just think, it's, that's not even a very difficult distinction to make. If you adopt the view we adopt today that everything that has an effect on everything else is a, is a national matter, you know, there's that awful Supreme Court case where if you grow corn and just eat it yourself. Wickard v. Filburn. That's yep. interstate commerce, right? And you can read Justice Thomas on that to get the point that commerce just means trade across state boundaries. And... So once you start saying that everything affects everything, then there's no dispersion of power. And that means that, you know, I mean, Lord help us, what do I get this morning? You know, uh, implicit bias training of everybody in our health center, commanded by the government of the state, by the health department. What? Oh, yeah. That's, you know, that's everywhere now, right? And, uh... And that means, you know, first of all, here we, Hillsdale College is a big national thing, but it begins with a very intense activity among a bunch of people who know each other. And every one of them is a volunteer. And whatever reason the health department may have to hope that we treat each other well, we have much greater reason to do that because we want to be successful and it's our work. Wait, wait, wait. You've, you've just stunned me. The health department has no authority to mandate that. In fact, it's unconstitutional if they're mandating the study of race exactly. among a private... Con that's just well, that's, unconstitutional. You know, that's, that's the rage, right? That's, you know, corporations... Well, they're, they're allowed to do it. You can adopt it if you're a private entity, but the state can't mandate racially uh, uh, specific education. Well, they just have. And, uh, you know, so I have to figure out what to do about that. Uh, but it's, you know, it's, uh, it, but, but the details of, I mean, you know, like masks, right? Did you know that the, if you buy a mask in the drugstore, buy a really good one, it will filter out things that are above five microns in size, and the coronavirus is three microns in size. And, you know, these emails that have just been released by Anthony Fauci contain that fact, right? And so uh, one of my colleagues says, uh, it is true that if you want to stop somebody shooting you with a BB gun and you put up a chain link fence, it will be of some effect, just not much. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good, good, good. But I got to go back to this because I am, 
I'm just amazed that she has done this. And by she, I mean she must have given the order to the health department. The health department must have ordered the colleges of Michigan that have health departments. Now, you may be licensed by the state, and that is acceptable. That's a necessary and proper exercise of their police power. But the police power is limited in the United States. It cannot, for example, shut down a newspaper. It cannot require your guns be turned over. And it cannot mandate that you admit people on the basis of race or that you educate people on the basis of race. That is, it is, the, the great sin of America is to be race conscious. I, I, I am flabbergasted. Well, that's, but you know, that's, every day there's something like that uh, from, from a million directions. Uh, don't get me talking about the NCAA. And, uh, and, you know, we navigate through all that and well so far, but it's a constant burden, too, uh, because what do we want? You know, we've got a big effort recruiting inner-city kids to come to Hillsdale College, and Hillsdale College is very difficult to get into. And when they get here, they're to be treated just like everybody else. And, you know, we managed to pull that off pretty well, right? And that's a great blessing when you have it. But if everything has to become race consciousness, what about, you know, here's what's wrong with that. The human soul is compared to everything else on Earth a magical thing because it can talk and understand and think and communicate in dimensions unknown to every other creature. Now, that can't be a matter of color. And, you know, we, we set out with an old, the, the, the ancient task of the liberal arts, which is to understand the eternal things. Right, and if we can, if we can't understand them, except according to our color and other conditions, then there's no objectivity possible. None possible. Uh, I'm going to be back with Doctor Arn to finish up on the Jacksonian Revolution. Don't go anywhere, America. This is the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America, to you. Dr. Larry Arn is my guest, president of Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale are collected at hillsdale.edu. If you want to support a great institution, by the way, and they don't ask me to say this, I just say you can become a Hillsdale donor at hillsdale.edu, and you can also sign up for Imprimus, the monthly speech digest, which is uh, sent to you the old-fashioned way in the mailbox. And the two million readers of it love it. It might be more than two million. I don't know whatever it is. Uh, Dr. Arn. Andrew Jackson left an imprint, and we still talk about whether or not Trump was Jacksonian. But it was his temper. I like to point out, though, he's not well known for his commitment to the union. Uh, And that was absolute. Yeah. Well, he, so, you know, there are two things you have to mention about Jackson that are of big interest. And one is the nullification crisis of 1828 and 32. And the other is, he relocated thousands of Native Americans to their great suffering and cost. Uh, so the uh, so the nullification thing. Uh, they pa- they pa- the the North, in, you know, in early American history through Middle American history, the North in general liked tariffs. They wanted to be manufacturers, and they wanted tariffs on manufacturing goods so they could compete better with the established nations. 
And the South didn't want that because, first of all, they had to buy manufactured goods from abroad and tariffs made them more expensive. But also retaliation would mean that foreign nations would uh, put tariffs on agricultural products from America. So there was in 1828 a tariff passed, and it's a curious thing, it's a high tariff, it's 47%. And that was partly because uh, southern delegates made the tariff really high thinking it would be outrageous and wouldn't pass, and then it did pass. Ah. And so John Calhoun, who was a mischievous man in American history and vice president under Andy Jackson, he developed the theory of nullification, and that was that uh, if a state thought that a federal law was unconstitutional, it could nullify within its own borders the operation of the law. And uh, Andy Jackson was going to go to war over that. It didn't come to that, but there were skirmishes, and I mean, it got close to that. And uh, that was a prefiguring of the Civil War that would come later. Uh, uh, oddly enough, uh, John Calhoun was a great unionist himself in favor of internal improvements and things to unite the land together, roads and, and canals and all kinds of stuff to make it one great nation but the states were to be the sovereign entity in it. And I'll say one thing about this debate. Uh, it, it gets simpler uh, if you, because, you know, the, the states are, are given powers. The states are given more powers in the Constitution than the federal government, more in quantity. And, uh, and the federal government is giving power. And how do you arbitrate disputes between them? Well, you have to start with the fact that the people are sovereign. State, states are not sovereigns. We speak of states' rights. It's a hallowed expression. But in one way, it's very inaccurate. States don't have rights. They have authorities. And they get the authorities from the people who have the rights. So the people have given some authorities to the federal government, and they've given some authorities to the state governments. And they have put in the Constitution certain mechanisms for working out when there's a dispute about that. And the key one is the laws passed by the federal government will be the supreme law of the land, and the court rulings of the federal courts will be the supreme court rulings in the land. But that doesn't cover everything, right? And uh, Madison describes the union as partly federal and partly national, and his idea is that uh, in the end, when there's a dispute like this, that a recurrence to the people is what will happen naturally through elections, and they will f figure it out, because you can't have a body superior to the people and have the, so the people still be sovereign. So Jackson was a figure in this, and I think he was a happy figure in this, and I think that nullification stuff is crazy. Uh, and, you know, it's a topical thing, right, because a lot of crazy laws are being passed, and a lot of governors, you know, Ron DeSantis, a notable example, are simply passing laws that uh, those things are not going to run here. But they're not quite nullification. They're not nullification. They are separation from uh, a dynamic which is not yet federalized. But were they to be federalized, the federal law would win absent 
the Supreme Court intervening and saying that that was an excess of the delegated authorities to the federal government. Yeah, and if we pack the court, then what relief is there? And uh, yeah. and so, yeah, this is a, it is a very dangerous time in American history. And these disputes over nullification, over, you know, go back to the Adams administration, uh, they passed the Alien and Sedition Acts, the Federalist Party in the Congress, and Adams didn't want to sign it, but he was talked into it. Uh, and they were, you know, prosecuting newspapers. Not very many, but they were. And so there was a reaction against that. And Madison and Jefferson wrote the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions that called for the states. Uh, Madison was a more precise man than Jefferson, I think, and founder on many questions. He called for the states to interpose. He didn't say nullify. Yeah, Jefferson interpose. that word. More on that next week. Larry Orn is out on a gamble with his friends. And so next week it'll be Dr. Matthew Spaulding. But the Hilldale Dialogue will be back next week. Thank you, Dr. Orn. Thanks all for listening. When you absolutely, positively need the truth, this is where you turn. This is The Hugh Hewitt Show.